Our entire lives, we've been told to separate things into two sides, right and wrong. Right. And the thing is, is that's punitive. And, you know, like, like when I talked to, to Tio, if you listen to that episode, like he talks about working in the prison. He found somebody. He murdered a woman and he and the mother of that woman ended up embracing and talk to each other and are regular like communicators now because they restore what was wrong. And when asked if he would like to get out of prison, he said, no, mm. I'm here to do my time. Wow. Because it's different, right? Like, like I'm getting emotional. Like there's like this, there's, there's a punitive aspect to like our living our lives, but there, if we want to be ourselves, we cannot judge ourselves from that place. We have to accept where we're at and restore what we can. Martin John Garcia, known as the Recovery Mentor, is the host of the Recover Yourself podcast. Martin John is a healer, artist, teacher, certified Reiki master, energy healer, and creator of the Portrait Method. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Sober's Dough Podcast. Shout out to everyone in the recovery community, mental health community, healing community, and everyone looking for motivation and to get their life back on track. Today's episode is really exciting. I have a great guest, Martin John Garcia, the host of the Recover Yourself podcast on with us today. Martin is an exceptional individual who's extremely passionate and he focuses a lot on healing and getting ourselves to take our power back. Some of the topics we cover today are recce, inner blocks that prevent healing, emotional stability, emotional sobriety, emotional intelligence, energy healing, pre-karmic buffets, early sobriety, the portrait method, restorative justice versus punitive justice, energy transmission, gambling addiction, and so much more. I am really excited to bring this episode to you. It is just jam-packed with healing and spiritual wisdom. And we cover everything from early sobriety and why time is not as important to the big picture of recovery and understanding emotional sobriety and taking accountability on all levels. From suicidal thoughts, self-mutilation, to transmitting spiritual energy via art, this episode provides a powerful look into what sobriety means and how we can use introspection and self-discovery to recover ourselves as human beings. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a lot. With no further ado, I'm extremely excited to introduce you all to my friend and one of my mentors, Martin John Garcia. Please enjoy our talk and I'll catch you guys on the other side. Martin, how are you doing today? Oh, today has been a real good day. Real good. 
<laughs> yes, yes, yes. Hey, we have to we live this one day at a time lifestyle, so we have to make a most of it. Martin, for people who don't know, you are the host of the Recover Yourself podcast, your recovery mentor. You have 20, uh, 19 years sobriety and this December is going to make 20 years. So again, when I first met you, you reached out to me and you gave me a platform when I didn't really have one. Before, and yes. that meant a lot to me. And um, so for everyone that knows you as the recovery mentor can we take it back a bit can you tell us about your origin story how you found your sobriety and what that looked like almost 20 years ago during y2k when you decided that you was going to take that step to find your recovery well yeah it's you know it's it was a long journey um let me let me let me let me kind of wrap wrap my head around that question because you got to understand when I talk about recovery yourself, I'm talking about where we're going, not where Absolutely. we're coming from. So Absolutely. I don't often look over my shoulder at what's back there. Yes. Not that I'm afraid of it. I dealt with that shit and we move that, forward. That's I ain't right. got to relive that. Right. Yeah, exactly. So I'm going to go ahead just kind of like cherry pick some stuff for you. Okay. So I started drinking using 13, 14, right? 13, okay. 14 years old. I was drinking and using cocaine. And, um, and that, that that really sort of helped me escape from everything that I wasn't, but everybody else wanted me to be. Okay. One of the big things that I realized is that I wasn't good in school. I wasn't good at testing. I wasn't good at sports. I wasn't good at all of the things that I was expected to be good at by being either male or um, or just a person, right? Like you need to be good at school or you're going to be a bum. Right. And that was a big, that was a big word that my dad used to call me all the time. Right. As you're a bum, you know, you're not, you're never going to amount to anything, all this kind of stuff. So I, I really brought that in when my dad left, you know, my parents got divorced, my dad left. And that's what made me start really just kind of like, Oh, I got space. Mm -hmm. And my dad was an alcoholic as far as I'm concerned when I was a kid. So uh, like, I don't know that he would have considered himself one, but right. Like there, right. there was alcohol everywhere. I was the, I was the beer fetcher, right? Like yeah. I was the person that, you know, like he would turn to. So, so, you know, at 13, I started drinking and I started seeing someone, we started doing Coke and then there was all of this other stuff, right? Like then, then that's when I started to really be like, I fit in. I fit in by not fitting in. And, and I, and I double down, I would double down on that, like, um, like that lifestyle of just like, well, you're, you're nothing. So it doesn't matter. And then I was told at 18 that I should probably think about going to an AA meeting <laughs> and, um, and, and that's when I went to my first AA meeting and that didn't solidify until I was until 2000. So I was 25. Now, um, I went to that meeting and, and, and it just started weaving me in and out of sobriety, using sobriety, using sobriety, using, and my sobriety wasn't, about building anything it was all this surface sort of work of like well i just won't use and that's fine Correct. um during that time i was hospitalized for malnutrition dehydration because when i didn't have my 
my drugs, alcohol or whatever, I would stop eating because I could control that. I would punish myself for uh, eating poorly by not eating for days. Um, so, so that was something that really started to show itself. Like my, my, the real disgust for myself. I also became a cutter during that time. So I cut myself quite a bit. Um, and, uh, you know, addicted to all sorts of stuff like porn. And then I started utilizing gambling, um, as another behavioral addiction that I, I would, I would gamble, uh, quite a bit. Um, then I had, I had found a time between 1999 and 2000 that I had a year sober and, and I started to feel like I was thinking clearly. And what happened was one night I decided, okay, well, I'm going to have a glass of wine with dinner. I drank three bottles of wine and I didn't have three bottles of wine that night. I had one and I finished that. And I don't recall going out and getting more. Um, I just did. And the next day I woke up, my bathroom was full of Merlot and like red wine and like whatever. And, and I was like, something is missing with sobriety. Something is missing, right? Like there, there, there was a point. And that was when I really internalized this idea of recovering too. I was like, well, it's not about running from something. It's about moving towards something. Yes. And that was, that is when my sobriety really solidified because it was no longer about the expectations of others someone telling me i should go to an aa meeting what do i look like externally what do i what am i you know like what am i doing you know like in this external way because i was an artist and like you know and i was just like like this is what artists do with like whatever you know like all of this story stuff and it was all about image and it was all about all of these other things and one of the images was that I that was one that I didn't want to look at, which was the image of me looking at me and and drinking and using and and all of that. And I was like, well, if I want to eventually look at myself, I have to move towards being a person that I want to look at. Right. Right. Right? That's heavy. So you have to be able to do that introspection. And most people don't want to look at that, the real deep aspects of themselves right is that those scary parts of yourself when you look it in the mirror and you have to do that real work i love that before we actually met i never really thought about my recovery as me recovering from this so-called addiction and darkness and recovering to anything i was stuck in kind of like that medium of maintenance right just maintaining mm-hmm. right and that's and now that i think about it you know over the years it's, it makes sense because it's kind of like it's not a clear destination point you really don't know where you're going you're just focusing on the present and we're taught one day at a time focus on it now you know and it gets hard every day you have to maintain the sobriety. So recovering too. Um, when we, when we first spoke, I was talking about recovering to more, a better spiritual person, a, a more enlightened person, a more fulfilled person in general, throughout your years of asking the question and posing it to different people. Do you have a general idea of what we may need to focus on and what we should be recovering to? Is that, I know it's broad, but it's, broad. it's it's broad. But, but it, it's broad because we're all different. We're all different. Correct. Right. Like I just interviewed um, Barbie the welder 
and she's drinking again. Okay. Good on you. What? Yeah, like, yeah. That ain't my path. Yeah, correct, correct. Whatever. Like, you know, like, you want that? Like, go do it. Like, <laughs> I don't, do you know, like, like, good. And she talks about how she changed her mindset. The reason right. she drank before was because she hated herself. Mm. The reason she drinks now is social. Okay. Right? She doesn't mind it. It's not something that's getting out of control. It's not something that is that currently, and maybe it will, but yeah. is that wrong? Right. No, like, no one can say my addiction got me here and yeah. I'm in a fucking good place. Right. <laughs> You're in like, a good place. Right. Right. And for every person, I mean, I always tell people and when I was like your story, by the way, your year one story is the classic point of reference for people in recovery who has these thoughts. They play with these sexy thoughts of what if, right? They try to, you know, what if I could just have one drink and they try to normalize addiction. Like, you know, maybe I could have one drink of wine for dinner. It always seems sexy and safe when you're in a place of recovery, right? But as soon as you start to imbibe, you clearly realize, you realize really fast, wait a minute, I messed up. And that was my case. Like every time I relapsed, it came from this so-called innocent place, right? This place, (laughs) you know what, you know, I I feel better now when I tell people you're in recovery, you find power, there's power there. And that power could feed on the insidious nature of your addiction that, you know, plays with your mind. So be careful. So in my case, when I started thinking about what I'm recovering to it's being at peace with my recovery and sobriety, right? Not no longer needing to play with the idea, being absolute about my position because I know in my case, I can't drink. Your first year, one, you drank the wine, then you you said, wait a minute, let me pull back and do the spiritual work. Let me look at myself and let me heal the underlying causes, right? So mm-hmm. what changed... Well- then that allow you to go from relapsing in year one to now being at year 18 with all of this success. What was the change in your mind? Like what made it so permanent where you didn't relapse for 18 years? That's a good, that's a good question. Give me a minute. Yeah. Take your time. So, so, so a lot, so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to jive on some stuff. So a lot of this, like, don't forget, like, although I haven't touched drugs and alcohol, doesn't mean I didn't gamble. Doesn't right. mean I didn't smoke. Right. Doesn't mean I didn't like, like that shit's important too. Like, it doesn't mean I didn't overdose on coffee. Right. Like I was, I had this, you know, shakes yeah. and shit, like, yeah. like all sorts of stuff. Right. Like, like I touched on a lot in order to get through what I would consider early sobriety, year one to five. Yes. Okay. Okay. Year one to five sucks. Yeah. Yes. Because yeah, yes, there's good times in there and stuff, yeah. and there's all this stuff. But one to five, for me, and 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 this is just my experience. And numbers don't matter. And and I want to, you know, a lot of people are like numbers. Dot dot dot. I could get, you know, it's like yes, okay, go 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 do that. But the shit you got to learn. And I believe that there is a chemical balance that has to happen in your mind. And uh, alcohol uh, needs some time to uh, your body needs time to repair from the alcohol damage that you, that you've brought in period. I don't care. I don't, I don't care if you don't have a alcohol problem. If you drink alcohol regularly, even like twice a week or whatever, 
your body is being shut down for that time and your ability to access um, the spiritual stuff that you and I talked about when we talked about above and below the line uh, creativity, right? Yes, like, right. Like, like that, like the veil between you and higher consciousness that, that is, that is being blocked off. Whether you're taking tobacco or, um, or alcohol or drugs or whatever, that's being shut down to an extent. Correct. And, and, and so just getting through those five years, the only thing that was important was getting time. And right. so I utilized, you know, going to meetings because that was the only game in town. Okay. Um, as a way to keep me sober. And, and it was all about shame. If I had to show up at a, at a, at a meeting and, and had drunk, I wasn't going to be able to lie. Right. 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 You can't, I couldn't look them in the eye. Yeah. So I had to go. Right. So just going regularly kept me sober. And that was really it. Like there was there like, during that time, was there a big spiritual awakening? I mean, I made artworks and I made all these sorts of things to help me communicate in a way that was nonverbal and nonlinear, right? Mm-hmm. Like I was in communication with myself in some way and I just had to be open and have faith right. that that was moving me towards something. Year one to five, I, 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 I don't even know what the hell was going on. Right. Like right. I was still engaged in activities. I had a friend who was also sober and she was an artist and we lived together. And so that made it easy. Right. I had somebody, but I live in a, I live in a big city, right. I live in Chicago. So, so all of a sudden, like having somebody that's sober, I mean, you can swing a cat and find a sober person when you're around this many people. Right. You know? Um, and so that was a big, that was a big win. And, and she had a handful of years already. And so I had a mentor, like she wasn't my sponsor because I needed relationships outside of the rooms. I needed relationships outside of, um, outside of recovery. Um, it's interesting, you know, like, putting out an email tomorrow that brings in the, the phrase, the quote from this, this woman I interviewed April Garfoli that says, you know, recovery is not meant to be your life. It's meant to give you your life back. I love it. I love it. Right. And, and that's such a big deal. Like, I like, like I gave up everything for my drinking. Right. Right. Now, I gave up everything for my drinking, but really all of the things that I was were given up before I took my first drink, which is mm. why taking that first drink turned into me giving everything up. Like, and I, w- I was ready to give it up permanently You're right. until I stopped until you stopped. That's powerful, man. That's so much. That's so powerful. I mean, for me, I think, and I tell people this all the time when I'm, you know, the first 
for one to five years, like you were talking about, we experience a lot of post-acute withdrawal symptoms. The brain is healing specifically, and that takes time because we know when we drink alcohol, the alcohol floods our brain with dopamine, and the end result is it reduces the dopamine receptors. Our dopamine receptors are kind of like damaged, so to say. So the way your body, your brain's relationship to dopamine is totally upside down. And when you stop, your brain, your dopamine receptors now are working to get back to a healthy state. And this is where the mental health comes in because the moment your neurotransmitter hormones like dopamine or something drop to an unhealthy level, you're automatically into a mental health diagnosis. That's like comorbidity. That's why I tell people alcohol is a depressant. So the one thing it does really well is depresses us, whether it's consciously or subconsciously. And when we stop, it crashes even more. So we're in, we're dealing with this depression. We're dealing with the sadness, this uncertainty, this confusion, this vagueness. And we're just trying to go through the motion. So for me, the first five years, I literally, I developed pre-diabetes because I was just doing everything but drinking. And in that, in my mind, that was okay because my drinking was the, the, the demon I could see. That was the demon I knew that I had to run from. So as, as my brain healing was like, okay, we need glucose, we need sugar, we need carbs, we need everything, we need rest. One thing that I, I, I'm not sure, you never did rehab, right? Did you have to go to rehab? Or did I, you I, I, I never had to do rehab. My, my detox was done on my own and it was wow, painful. Wow, that's, um, that's tough. That's tough. It was, it was you know, like uh, now when I quit for good, it was I only had drunk one day, three bottles of wine, okay. MBD. I can get okay. over that. Like, right. you know, like I'm still, I'm still young, right? Yeah. The detox that I had to go through the year prior Right. was bad because I was u- using and drinking quite a bit for quite a while. At that point, I was going through about a fifth of vodka a day. Wow. Okay. So, so I quit and I was cool. Like my liver and my, my kidneys and stuff, they were cool. Cause I was okay. young still. Yeah. Um, but I remember when I quit, like I, before I quit, I, I did have organ pain. Okay. Right. So so I eventually quit um, and I had I'd gone probably about two weeks of just being like super, super edgy and like like my nervous system was fucked. And I didn't really know what was going on because it, the information wasn't there. I and mean, we're talking 2000, right? The Internet was around, but all I did was fucking like play SimCity or some shit, yeah. you know, like so it wasn't like it was it wasn't yeah. like 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 it is today with information, no. especially when the only game it wasn't the only game in town necessarily. But the only one that I knew of was AA and they weren't just fucking like, you know, I mean, and I was in AA, but no. but, you know, everyone was just like, no, you got this, you know, like that kind of attitude yeah. was fine. Yeah. Well, it's incredible because a lot of what you were doing, like you was like leaning on the coffee, leaning on this, leaning on that. And you was doing what you needed to do because somehow, somehow, whether it was conscious or subconscious, you knew I have to do whatever it takes to not do these two things that use and drink. And then you got yourself on. And then later on, you develop this consciousness like, well, now I want to like work on my health and maybe address these other things. Like now I'm still working on my core. Like today's day three or four where I'm just like, wait a minute, um, um, 
at home because of COVID-19. So I'll get to work from home and stuff like that. I'm not trying to, I'm not out every day. Why am I drinking coffee? I was getting up as if I had a straight nine to five and had to stay on the road all day. I'm still knocking down the coffee. And then when you, and then when I stopped, I realized I was detoxing. I was going through a state of detox. I said, wait a minute, this can't be good if I'm detoxing from it, right? If I mm-hmm. decide to stop drinking soda or something, the sugar crash should be there. But the coffee, I'm experiencing sweats, Broke out a little bit, a little agitated, sleep patterns upside down. I'm going to bed at five in the morning and waking up at five in the evening and then doing that over and over again. So I said, wait a minute, something's a little bit upside down. So I had to put things in perspective. So that brings me to this point where we get to a point in our recovery where we develop a consciousness where now we have to pay attention to maybe other things that we are maybe developing an addiction to. Because we have an addicted personality. So in your case, it was gambling. In my case, it was sports, sports betting and stuff like that. I have a big problem mm-hmm. with that I got to work on. Right. Then it was the coffee. And then it's uh, I gave up the cigarettes. Thank God. But that was it. the first four years was just two, three packs of cigarettes a day. Coffee. Bye. Yeah. Bye, right? <laughs> Is that sustainable? Right. Can I stay sober and smoke cigarettes and drink coffee every day? And how that gonna, how's that going to look 10 years from now? So that brings us to just being conscious in our recovery and choosing how to make better life choice choices. When did you discover that, though? When did you discover, like, wait a minute, I may be replacing one addiction for another? It didn't take long, right? It like, didn't take long. <laughs> like, like, even though it was all those five years, right? Like, right. I'm still, I'm, so I call these things pacifiers. Okay. Right. Okay. In my work, I call it like in the work I do when I work with clients and stuff, I was calling pacifiers because nobody wants to be told that they're using coffee and it's they're addicted to it because they're drinking it every day. Right. Or or their work or cleaning or exercise. They don't want to they don't want to call it an addiction because it's good for you. And it's like, all right, well, well, then you're pacifying yourself in one way or another. For me, you know, so I was a cutter. Like looking at yourself in the mirror while you're bleeding, right? Like that wakes you up kind of quick just to be like, is this what I want to be doing? And then, right. you know, that my, those first five years, most suicidal in my life. Wow. Okay. Right. Like most suicidal, right? Like, like the, 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 the suicidal thoughts came quick and, and, and fast, you know, um, and, and, and would keep coming. Um, of course, there were phases that were good months, weeks, whatever, you know, but 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 I still didn't like who I was. And 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 once I got beyond that five years, like I saw things where it was like, huh, maybe I don't need this. Maybe I don't need coffee. Maybe I don't need to drink pop the way or soda the way I've been. Maybe I don't need to go gambling. Maybe I don't need to do these things. And then when I would get rid of it, I would notice that it was an addiction. One time I was like, ah, I'm not going to gamble anymore. And I quit gambling. It was great. A couple of years later, a friend of mine was like, hey, you know, we're not doing anything tonight. Why, why don't we go to the fucking track? And I was like, boom. Like I went from just being like a little lethargic and like whatever. And to like, boom, there I am. And I was just like, oh yeah, we can go. And like, we can do this and that, you know, like, right. and all of a sudden I was like, and my friend was like, we're not going because she knew that I had a gambling problem, but she never saw it because she came into my life after I got sober. Right. 
Right. And as soon as she saw me when she was like, let's go to the boat or let's go to the thing, like go, go to the tracks. I was like, I, I turned into a different person. Wow. And then she was like, we're not going to do that. And, and, and it was, it was things like that, that I was like, you know, there are more problems behind this and I'm still dealing with my pacifiers, right? You know, things that they aren't, putting me in a state of giving everything up, but I'm giving up something. And the only way I'm going to know what that is, is by giving that up. Wow. That's heavy. And it, it poses that deep question of when, uh, when, when is it enough enough? Like the, the, the depriving ourselves of happiness. Like what does that look like to maintain recovery? Like after a while, are you going to lose, are you just going to lose that ability to live? Because like, again, there's many points in my recovery when I realized I was becoming a very young, stiff old man. Right. So to say, because I, you know, my girlfriend is young, beautiful, wants to party. She's like, we don't go. We haven't went dancing in years. When do you we don't go to the club? You never want to go to the club. You never want to go out. You never want to go to party. So I went from being the party guy to being totally opposed to it. And I think somehow in my mind doing the work and healing, I just lost the desire. It wasn't even part of the protocol. I just was like, I I changed into this new thing, this new person. So now I was the most, when I say, I w- it's hard to explain, like going back into our past, but mm-hmm. it's clearly night and day. So for someone who knew me for the majority of my life, they're like, it's just an unrecognizable person. It's like, you're so different. And I changed so much because I suffered and went through so much in my addiction, it was so crazy that my brain just totally made me into this new person. Now I have to make peace with that. But I also have to catch myself and say, well, can I relearn how to go out and dance? Can I relearn how to move? I used to be a full blown professional dancer. I can't I can't even move. I lost my rhythm. I just don't know where it went. I changed. I'm very rigid. Now, now I go out. I'm like this. When I used to be like, let the music play, let the red split and dance in. And it's crazy. And I had a conversation with someone where I was really blunt and said, look, I don't care if you don't like who I am now. I'm at peace with it. And I'm this new guy and I'm still trying to learn myself. Right. What is it to you? And the person was just trying to remind me is like, well, it's somewhere in you has to be that pot we know, because the pot we're talking about was the kid before addiction. You was this big, exuberant person. So somehow it was this personality shift. Again, I went from my 20s to being in my 40s. I'm 41. Not the same person anymore. But we have to ask ourselves is um, are we giving up too much? Um, um, are we being too hard on ourselves? And what's and when is enough enough where we desire we can live again without the addiction being on our back? It's mm. a tough one. It's a tough. No, one. no, no. Not, it's, I want to make sure that I that I that I that I express it properly, um, or how I what I want to express. I don't think it's I don't think it's a tough one. I think it's uh, it's it's tough to understand. I, I maybe um, let me let me let me let me take a minute. Um, by is our not doing about what is it what is what is the core purpose for not doing something right and that's what we want to look at we want to look at am am i am i living a life 
in restriction, right? Am I living a life where I am not allowing myself to be happy? Because I'm going to tell you, I don't drink so that I can be happy. Brilliant. Right? Right. So you, I don't have the desire to listen to music very much in my life. I like quiet. I don't, you know, like there are times where I will purposely listen to something, but it won't be something that I just have on all the time. Filling space. Right. Right. That's pacified. Not paying attention to it. Don't care about it. I don't listen to music to be happy. Okay. Right. When I do listen to music, I listen to music to be happy. If you're not going to the club because you don't want to. Then you're not going to the club to be happy. Right. Right. If you want to go to the club nothing is stopping. That's right. That's right. Right. And so there's a difference between am I approaching this in a way that I am resistant to it? Maybe you will find there is resistance to going to the club. You can address that when you find it at the moment. What I'm hearing is that I don't want to. (laughs) Like (laughs) BFD, right? Like, and and so there is, This is what that becomes difficult for people when they are caught up in the addiction Mm. because they don't know the difference between happiness that is um, given to you through substance, through experience or happiness that is coming from you. Because the experience of the club is one that is wrought with addiction. Mm, music, yeah. sound, yeah. changing the, the, the atmosphere of all the people, so right. community and all of these things, all of these things and, and the lights that are changing all the time. What it's doing is it's making your brain flash a lot right. and, and, and you're becoming attracted to that. I'm, I'm writing an outline now to do an interview with Dr. Anna Lemke. I don't know if you've heard yeah. of her. No, I haven't. She wrote the book, um, Drug dealer MD, and it's all about the opiate, okay. how the opiate crisis kind of came to be. And I am writing, and in this outline, it's all about businesses aren't in the aren't aren't going out of their way to make you addicted. They want to sell things, and it just happens to be that in order to sell things, we have to get you addicted. All right. Absolutely. And so businesses, all sorts of businesses, clubs, alcohol, um, the internet, like if we, if you and I promote a social media post, that promotion goes into an algorithm that is contributing to the addiction of our neighbors. Mm, Happy, powerful, man. Right. And that's it. And and, and we are, we are complicit to subjecting our neighbors to addictive tendencies because we want to make money, because we want to be known, 
But making money and wanting to be known are addictions that we carry because we have been told for most of our life that having a lot of followers, having like having people listen to you, like being an influencer will make you money and having money is something that you want. And all of that is just a, when we get sober, right. we can see that that's not happiness right right and that's not security and that's not my future brilliant man that's heavy man thank you for clarifying that um and i and i and i and thinking back now i know why i don't like going to clubs and stuff because everyone else there is they're using alcohol as a social lubricant to create this environment right so it's like well i don't want to participate in that because you know what's in it for you yeah there's nothing in it it for me and i know subconsciously i'm not going to drink and then i'm not going to want to you know consciously you're not going to drink yeah so yeah consciously correct correct and um and it's just like you have to make peace with this new life and you have to know the difference. Right. And I, and I do find happiness in other ways. So I love that, man. I love that. That was real heavy. Thank you for that clarity there. Just that, that hits home, man, because for everyone that's new in recovery or even people that season, these are the thoughts and the realities we have to navigate. And just even social media, I did a podcast with social media addiction. Now I have like, I have a second phone now just for like, I don't I, now I have days where I just keep the phone off where I'm like, well, I'm just, yeah. I just don't want to deal with right now. I, I need to have this kind of like detox from social media. Mm-hmm. Um, they had this new concept that's interesting called the dopamine detox, which is taken out of context for most people. But I thought it was interesting is where people like detach from like things that make them happy or things that they think they're a little bit too addicted to. So they'll take, they'll, they'll stay in nature. They'll disconnect from their phones and they'll do this for a certain amount of time to bring down, I guess their dopamine levels, just their expectations or just uncontrolled excitement or need to be in. And I thought about that a lot with what we're doing and even myself, that discipline, you know, saying, well, I'm going to meditate this week opposed to just binge watching um, Hulu or something like that, having these parameters set. Um, it's just, just important to our recovery. So ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening, just look in, look deep into yourself and find out what's working for you. What are you using? How are you using your recovery? And try to find these loop. I know some things for me is healthy, like coffee is not healthy for me. It just makes me more anxious and it plays on the nervousness. I want to jump a little bit to mental health because that's very important, right? In the community, um, you talked about a lot, like the cutting, go, you know, some somewhat. I didn't hear themes of depression, but being a healer, <laughs> I was cutting myself. <laughs> I was drinking. I was going to the game. Like it was yeah. all. It was the, yeah. the, the, the. I hated myself. Like so, yes. Like there, like depression, depression. Like it, was it wasn't true. a debilitating thing because I was using stimulants and because I was doing other stuff, right? Like, but yeah, it but was, it was there. Yeah, as a healer on the healing side, um, mm-hmm. mental health, depression, anxiousness, all of this stuff, PTSD, trauma. You know, um, maybe our childhoods. So how you talk about your relationship with your dad? Do, do you think mm-hmm. all of that kind of contributed to the depression, the mental health, and the addiction? And and how and your healing is that a factor into it? Because I think there's a connection between um, alcohol, drugs, and mental health and addiction. I mean, and depression. Um, mm, 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 mm. yes, I, 
I've realized that I want to create those things that I needed when I was younger. Um, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm constantly trying to create those things. Um, and, and I'm, and I'm always missing the mark, right? Like to some degree, to some degree, you know, like, like, I don't think like one of the things, like one of the reasons that I do my podcast, one of the things that really kind of hit home early in sobriety, I was a driver. Like I just, not for anybody, I just liked to drive. Okay. And and I was driving my car, you know, I drive a couple hours north and then come back. It was okay. nothing. It was just like, I'm just going to go out and drive and think. Okay. And I, 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 I flipping through the radio or whatever, and I came across a religious station and it was, you know, it's entertaining to listen to things that you don't normally listen to. Right. And this preacher was talking about how, you know, like you hate your dad because you keep reliving the stories that help you hate your dad. And like, I realized that what I was doing was every morning waking up and like reminding myself of why I hated my dad. Even though I hadn't seen him in almost a decade, I had fresh memories that I was re-engaging. Mm. All the time. That is because that happened to me. That's kind of why I do my podcast. Mm. Because my podcast is spoken and a little, you know, like about just like, here's a little tidbit. Here's a little thing, right? Like I'm creating that which I needed and that which kind of affected me when I was younger. And so, so when we talk about, you know, like, how did all of that affect what I'm doing today? It's everything, right? Like, like all of those things. I talk about a thing. I don't know if I ever talked to you about it. Pre-karmic buffet. If I talk no, to you about this, let's, this, let's is, this, is, this is a good one. Okay. So stick with me. Before your person, that which is pop, entered your body, you and God went down a buffet. And in that buffet, you picked out the most delicious things. And in that was, you know, um, worthiness. Like, I believe that there was a really beautiful dish in the, in, in, in the world buffet that was racism and that we all picked up a little bit of. Mm -hmm. And we all have to eat that. We all have to, in our lives, we have to experience that. We won't, we, you know, one of the biggest problems with buffets is that they're all you can eat. So right. you just pile up and you pile up this self-hatred and you pile up all of these delicious looking things as, as your, as your karma mm -hmm. and you pile these things up and, and you know, that's yours. You have to, this is, this is your meal of life. You go back to your table and God kind of tallies it up and goes, all right, so this is what you want. Your best route to eating all of this is with this family mm. and you go there and then you go in and now you have this, these big piles of emotion, big piles of energy, big piles of things that you have to go through in your life. And if you can look at all of the things that you have to suffer in your life, as just part of the buffet you picked out. It's a lot easier than like, Oh my God, I got to deal with some shit. Just be like, Wow. 
Wow. Like, how delicious is it going to be to approach this new this new depression? And it's not something that you're going to be in forever. It's just something you have to you have to eat. You have like, to eat. Damn, I didn't I didn't fucking like like you, you take that minestrone or whatever, and you're like, oh, there's no beans in it or whatever. It's just yeah. like, well, still yeah, what you pick, still right? What you like. Pick. And so, and so that's kind of how I look at like living life and like, and it's all there. Like you didn't as a 16 year old pick something else. You picked it a long time ago. Now it's just starting. Now you, you know, you, you got rid of that one layer of something and now you're at another layer of something and, and it's all the same. And so no matter what you do, you are you. Wow. And that. Is again like that, you know, just keeps coming back to this. We want to recover you, you know, like because like it's in there and you've never known it. You've never known it. Right. Right. I love that. I love that. And um, when I when you say that, it makes me think about the importance of processing pain, processing trauma, you know, um, and processing our emotions, because this is where a lot of the trouble starts, especially with mental health and addiction. Um, Dr. Gabor Mate, I'm, I'm sure you heard of him. He always talks about all addiction stems from some form of pain. Right. And that's one idea of it. Everyone has different ideas, but, you know, we don't necessarily in a healthiest way, address the pain, the trauma. And then now they're saying like the body keeps the score because the unprocessed emotions and unprocessed trauma just gets us in a real, uh, puts us in an unhealthy state physically, mentally. And a lot of these emotions have to be worked out. And that's why I like that. That's why one, the podcast is important for us, helping people, you know, really uncover like you like to say the truth and like recover towards to some form of reality being vulnerable and it's so deep and thank you for being vulnerable there you, you were touching on a lot of stuff you know your past dad being a cutter and stuff and that brings me to my next thing as a teacher you have a concept that you post to your students called emotional stability right um and i love this because when i was looking through you know all of the beautiful things that you have gone Going. Again, ladies and gentlemen, for me to put this in context, we know Martin John is a recovery mentor, healer, artist, teacher, and also a recce master. So you really did a lot of spiritual work um, along the way. So can you talk to us about the importance of emotional stability and how you help your students, um, you know, deal with that? So part of that is this idea of um the idea of the pre-karmic buffet comes into this, right? Yes, like right. if you can think of it just a little different, emotional sobriety is achievable. Mm. You're emotionally unstable mm. when you're addicted to your anger, when you're addicted to your hate, when you're addicted to your frustration, when you're addicted to all of these things, right? And so what we want to do is we want to achieve some sort of neutrality. We want to be the observer, not the, not the thing. Like when people say I am mad, you know, they're like, they are, they, they, they are embodying mad. Right. Right. Rather than being like, huh, that made me feel angry because that's really what happened. 
Correct. Right now, if we can approach our lives from a place of more neutrality rather than ownership of what's happening, you know, and like, like I said, like, this is just the buffet that you picked out. Like it doesn't have anything to do with you. Right. It's just like, this is, this is your work for life. This is, you are working towards bettering life for others. Right. So you have to get through your plate. Right. Right. Cause if you don't, someone else is going to have to eat that shit and you picked it. Right? It's just right. going to get cold and gross. Right. So, so, so that's part of it. One of the big things that I talk about is understand that if you're experiencing something that you don't like, that means there's something about you, you don't like. So once you're done blaming someone else, you got to do the work of going back and figuring out what about you is that reflecting, you know, too many people want to say, it's not me. It's not me. It's just you. It's you. You did this. I mean, our president does this like fucking mad, right? He doesn't, he's never done anything right. Like, Oh, you know, and, and, and when you don't do that personal work, when you don't, when you don't take a step back at some point, look, I don't care if you go punch someone in the face, that's fine. We've done it. More people are going to do it. It's going to happen. But when you get home, go, why did I get that mad? What probably happened is you're addicted to being angry and physically lashing out and you're not in touch with that at all. And you don't even recognize it. And if you're and once you make that littlest thing go, huh, you know, like like this is an interesting thing. I didn't want to do that. Right. Just that. Just saying I didn't want to do that. Even if it's three days later, rather than defending the fact that you did it. Well, he did this and he did this and he did that. And so I punched him in the face. But it's like, right. But is that what you wanted to do? And then a lot of people, they double down like I did on my alcohol and drugs and say, yes, that's what I want to do. That's who I am. I'm this kind of person. And if I don't do that, I'm not me. Well, then you're addicted. Mm. Right. And and that's fine. You're fine. It's all right to be addicted to shit. Like we all get addicted. Like we are living in a world where everybody is an addict and nobody knows it. Mm, That's heavy. Right. And, Right. and, And the moment we can start becoming emotionally sober, then you're not going to become emotionally sober if you're drunk and you're not going to become emotionally sober. If you're high, you're not going to become emotionally sober. If you're addicted to porn and fucking internet and all of these other things, you're not. Because right. there's not going to, as soon as you start to think that I was wrong, you'll be able to pacify that thought with whatever you want. So there is no way to do that without, you know, like you said, like getting some sort of a dopamine like uh, 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 retreat or a dopamine like reduction so that right. you can actually feel like, huh, now I can add awareness to what I'm doing. But if you can't add awareness to it, you're not you're not going to get anywhere and that's fine like right. you're you just have a different you got a different buffet that's all that's it that's it that's that's deep and that, that you so you have emotional sobriety emotional stability and that and I, I like to add emotional intelligence to the mix i just really learned about this on how um mm-hmm. not letting other people's emotions affect your own inner sanctum so it's like the example people use is like if i walk into work and i'm extremely happy i'm having a good day my coworker comes up to me and they just unload on me. They're having a bad day. They had a bad meeting with the boss and they think the boss is going to fire them and the boss is upset. Now 
if you don't have a certain level of emotional intelligence, it's going to that energy is going to affect you. Now you're going to start thinking about, well, what if the boss is going to fire me? Then you, your idea about the work environment is going to change. Your mood is going to change. And now you're having a happy day within a five minute period of absorbing someone else's energy. And the point of understanding your emotional intelligence is being able to look at someone else's issues and say, I understand that, you know, um, but not absorbing that, you know, creating a safe defense and being able to say I could process my emotions and I could let and I could understand the difference between someone else's emotions. So if you're angry that shouldn't affect me or shouldn't cause me to be angry if I don't want to be angry so knowing the difference with that it will help go ahead go ahead I see you want to say <laughs> I want to riff on that just a bit yeah no problem so um yes you are right they do not have the ability to change your day right like they shouldn't like you should not give them that a little bit ago, I mentioned if there's anything that you don't like out in the world, there's something about you that you don't like. Right. So if I allowed them to do that to me, I can blame them and be the victim of their of their actions. Um, and, and, and that's fine. A lot of people do that. Um, and, and we've done that for, for centuries now. But if I was affected by it, I don't have to be. Right. But how do I how do I not be when I'm obviously being affected? by? It, right. Correct. And that's where this if something outside of you is going wrong, something in you is going wrong. I'm just going to I'm going to I'm going to riff on this story just yes. for the for the for the sake of, of trying to get an explanation out of what I mean by 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 recovering yourself. Perfect. So um you upset me because you came to me and told me you were going to get fired. Now, all of a sudden, I'm thinking these things. Right. When when I ask, all right, why did my coworker tell me? Mm-hmm. And in my head, I'm like, well, he told me because he and I or she and I do the same work. And maybe, I don't know, I'm just making yeah. all this up. Correct. We do the same work and... They know, right? He knows that I've been slacking this last week and he's worried about his job, Mm. but I know I've been slacking. Now I can get mad at him for bringing this to my, to my attention. But if I were doing my work, I bring it all back home. I say, he told me that because he noticed that I was slacking. and, and, And if he goes to the, here's my mind going, if he goes to the boss he's going to tell the boss that i haven't been doing my work but he hasn't done work for six years or whatever the whole time like like he he doesn't even know enough he doesn't know as much as i do and i start defending myself Mm, all of a sudden all of these thoughts are starting to come in and 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 i'm able to if i'm able to calm down from blaming him or her or whatever i can start to see the the line the line let's say Say, okay, what is the what is the core problem? The core problem is I don't feel safe in my job. Let's say let's just say that's what it is. I don't feel safe in my job. Wait, that's that's what he was arguing with me about. That's what he came to tell me about. If I don't feel safe in my job. Guess what I'm going to see in the world around. People that aren't safe 
in their job and people that are reminding me that I'm not safe in my job because I'm reminding me that I'm not safe in my job. This is on your buffet plate. Mm. feeling safe. It's probably not, it probably doesn't have anything to do with feeling safe at your job. It probably has to do with feeling safe in your relationship. Mm. Probably has to do with feeling safe on the street. Probably has to do with feeling safe in your home. And I bet if you were to just recognize, go sit down and say, okay, this this, this motherfucker came out and was telling me some shit, whatever, and, and, and it pissed me off. Let me look, where does that resonate with me? Where does that resonate with how I see myself? Hmm. It's like, I don't feel safe in my job. Wow. Well, if I don't feel safe in my job, well, why? And it doesn't mean you have to stop and you have to go and try and find, try and be safe in your job. You have to find out where, what safety means to you because safety comes from here. And if you're getting safety from your job, your relationship, your family and other people, other places, your drugs, your alcohol, your gambling, your sex, your whatever, that's gonna go away. And you're gonna be left feeling unsafe. So your goal is to figure out where it's hurting you. And I'll tell you, the more you go out in the world and you, you can process that which you don't like about both yourself and others and you can process it down to a point and and this was this was just me making it up and and, right. and like when i but when i work with clients this is what we do which is why i only see my clients four times because it's like once we find it you go live your life you go find it yourself because i'm not going to just be on your shoulder helping you out i can't be right. codependency in this world right. is everywhere and it's like, I don't want to contribute to it at all. That's amazing. That's powerful, man. And, uh, and I hear a lot of in the theme of um, how you're speaking. I see, see a lot of taking accountability and ownership and actually doing the self-work and just being aware that you always are playing a role in every situation, whether you realize it or not. Right. Well, you experience everything in your mind. Right. Right. Like you don't exist really for me yeah. right like you are living your own life correct like for me what i hear what i see what i interact with is me mm. because i'm processing everything with my brain and my correct. brain can only process me because that's all it's ever processed Correct. That's that's powerful, man. Hey, hey, ladies and gentlemen, we listen to Martin John Garcia bringing it on the Sober is Dope podcast. Man, listen, I want to um, thank you for that. That's a lot of beautiful things. A few more points I want to touch on that really that I think really stood out to me. You talk about, well, you have something called the portrait method, right? And I yeah. Right. And um, the port and it stems from the portrait project being the groundwork, which led to the portrait facilitation and the portrait method. Right. right. Um, and this is where, you know, you talk about sharing and vulnerability and people opening up to explore the inner blocks. <laughs> so what I was interested in and also teaching, uh, teaching and helping people find their own emotional stability that we was talking about. I just want to talk about the portrait method and how you utilize mm -hmm. your art and everything with your clients to uh, uncover this, these fundamental aspects of themselves. And could we elaborate a little bit more on the inner blocks that we have to deal with? 
Well, the inner blocks are just like we spoke about, right? Like when someone comes to me with their issues right? and I feel like I'm a victim because of their issues, right? Like if I feel like a victim to the president, then that shit, like I, I'm a victim somewhere, yeah, right? Like so if right. I feel like a victim to anything, you know, like that shit is there. That's deep. And I was, I was trained to do that. I was trained to be a victim, right? Okay. Um, and I learned to be a victim, right? I, I, I prefer learned to having been taught. So there's a difference between uh, uh, to learning and being taught. If we want to say my parents taught me ABC, well, then we're the victim of having been taught. Okay. If we can say I learned ABC, then we can take responsibility for changing that, that right. learned pattern. Correct. And, and, and the, the story that I told a couple minutes ago about the, the guy at work and stuff, like my block was that I was happy. Then my mom came in and made me all upset. Like, Correct. Like that's a block. Right. Like, like, like I have to be able to sort through that block, but I have to be able to see it first. Got it. Right. Got and it. so the portrait method is like I mentioned earlier, everything you experience is you. So even if I just draw a line on a page and point is hand that to you and say, that's you, Whatever you see, whatever you experience, however you react to that is you. Uh, right? Now I make I make good portraits, right? Like, yes, like you realistic do. kind of, you know, like yep. because I'm not I'm not I'm not I'm not a schlock, but <laughs> but but they're not meant to be flattering. And when you look at it, you have an experience because now you're looking at a painting of you. Not to mention that that painting took an hour and a half to make. And I'm sitting here having a conversation with you. And that conversation is often just me pulling from you information. And you're going to utilize different phrases. You're going to focus on things. You're going to get your emotions are going to go up and down. And, and I'm going to see all that. Not to mention, am I going to put it in the painting? Mm -hmm. It'll get there subconsciously. Yes. And then when you look at the painting, you're going to see something that I didn't make because what I made, I can see how you respond to it is what you see, which has nothing to do with what I made. Hmm. And many people, I, I did a portrait of a woman once three years after I made it. She was like, when you made the portrait, I loved it because you made it. But I didn't think it looked like me. Today, three years later, I look at that painting and it looks like me three years ago as I remember myself today. Wow, that's heavy. That's so, so all of this stuff like art is and the reason that I became a Reiki master wasn't because I wanted to do Reiki. It was okay. because I wanted to understand energy as it moves through space and as it moves through people. Because I knew that what I was doing was energetic because one day in, I, I write about my project and the portrait project started in 2000. Is that a date that rings a bell? Yes, yes, right? Yes, yep, right. So, so my portrait project was a big part of my sobriety as well. Correct. Correct. Um, and 
And today, I, I, I would write about my portrait project a lot. You know, I tried to get grants and stuff. I did get one, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't enough to keep doing, you know, like in a real robust fashion. Yes. One day I decided if I can, if, if what I believe is that my connection to people when I do their portrait is deeper than simply physical, meaning that I'm connecting with them on a, some spiritual weird level. Okay. If that's true, I should be able to do a portrait of someone without ever having seen them and get a likeness. Amazing. And that turned out to be true. Right. So I started doing portraits of people without looking at them. And I started getting likenesses. That's what led me to Reiki. That's what led me to creating the portrait method. Now, the portrait method first session is a portrait. We right. sit down, we do a portrait, I send it to you, you record how you feel about it, you record your thoughts and how it changes over time. Because the portrait changes, like everybody talks about how it changes over the first couple of days they have it. And, and I'll explain why in a second. And then we have a session that we talk about the portrait, but we also talk about things that we talked about in the first session and we start to piece things together. The third session, we really start to tear it all down and we get down to the core of like your stuff. Usually that stuff comes up before the third session. Fourth session is pretty simple energy work and uh, kind of a, a, a little, a little, a little speech about like, this is what you learned. Let me wrap it up so you can reuse it. Okay. And then I let you go and I don't want to talk to you for at least three months. Because wow. you have to live your life. If you're not out there living your life and you're seeing me every week, then that's a codependent relationship. Wow. And what I want to do is give you tools to go do your shit, do your work. Like I, 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 And when I go in and I talk to IOP programs and stuff, like one of the first things I say is I don't care about your sobriety. Oh, fuck, I care about your sobriety. Mm. Like, like, I'm sorry, but like if you go drink, that was your choice. Fuck, like, like, even if it's a disease and all this stuff, I get it. Like, you go do it. But, like, fuck all. Like, I can't. Even more reason for me not to care. Even more reason for me to separate myself more from your drinking. Because you can't even control it. Why should I waste my energy on something neither of us can control? All right. Right? So I don't care about your sobriety. I care about you. Mm. And where you're going and what you're doing. And if you go drink and you have any inclination that I'm going to shame you, then you're going to lie to me. Wow. You're not going to be honest. And if I can tell you, look, I don't care about your sobriety. And I tell my clients all the time, look, if you drink, you drink. Shit ain't my problem. And my clients continually find new, like higher dates than they've ever seen. Why? Because I don't care about your sobriety. You do. And once you care about your sobriety, then it matters. Then it matters. Wow, that's wow. I love it. I love it. Wow. And you started this back in two thousand, and yeah. So, can you tell us how, how did the what did which came first, the recce or the portrait project? Or the portraits. The portraits oh, came portraits. in two thousand. The recce okay. only came in the last couple of years. That's four years or whatever. And, and for you to get to the level where you're at, it's um, and the style of recce is shipping. Then is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes you. I don't even. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna explain. It's a, it's a, 
I chose Reiki because, and and this this may sound shitty, yeah. because it is the most um, pedestrian of the energy fields, okay. right? Like it's the most, it's it's the like everyone and their mother is a fucking Reiki master. BFD, I can do this over a fucking couple weekends. It was pretty inexpensive. Okay. I got a, 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 a I got my lessons and 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 I have this thing. The only reason I did it was so that I can have a vocabulary to do my work. Okay, I don't it. want I don't want to do Reiki on you. Yeah. I want to change your life. Got you. Got you. Right. And, and, and I utilized my Reiki training as just a way for me to shift from art to healing and be able to make my art a healing practice. I love it. I love it. And then the, the means transmission of spiritual energy is just using that energy. I love it. Ladies and, and, and being in an environment like that helped me understand it and help me speak about it separate from like, oh, but I want to do this. So, so what? Like you learn something and then you bring it into your life and you bring it into your practice. Amazing. It's not about, it's not about doing one thing, right? It's about doing right. you. And that's what I keep doing. Like my portrait methods, mine recover yourself is mine. All of this stuff is just who I am. Right. Without the lessons. Right. Like like when I do Reiki, I'm not trying to fucking like do it right. Right. I'm just I'm just fucking like doing it, whatever that is. No, you're incorporating it. I love it. Oh, man. So, Martin, you are amazing. You gave us a lot today. You came on. I feel the 19 years of recovery. You did the work beyond what I even knew. I learned so much today about myself, even how I judge people, even how I look at other people. That's, I got to go and do a lot of work um, because we all have work to do. And being that I'm in my eight years and today you reminded me that not to be complacent, don't get cocky, don't get comfortable. You still have to always do the work and find that and bring it back to yourself and, and, and focus on yourself, the healing and take accountability and do it. Um, thank you so much. Um, what's, Before we go, yeah, I want to, yeah, I don't know how this is all going to wrap up, but yeah. I do want to say like i got 19 years like like it's it's not where you're at it's not where your 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 listeners are going to be at it's not right it's it's like you could you could approach everything you do um from i i recently interviewed this guy teal hardeman he he talks about the punitive um, criminal justice system and the uh, restorative justice system. And the, the, the reason I did the interview was because we need in our lives for ourselves a restorative system. Because that part of you that is judging other people and that part of you that doesn't want to do that are not in communication you judge, and then you judge the judging. Mm. That's punitive. Just like you said, I got to change that. Right. You got to restore. You got to restore the relationship between these two parts of you. And we all have to choose if we want to live a life of punitive action, meaning we judge ourselves, meaning we hurt ourselves, meaning we tell ourselves we're doing the wrong thing meaning there is no right answer for us because everything we do is going down the wrong path or 
a restorative process, which, yes, we're going to fuck up. And BFD, yeah, right, like, that's right, all right. right. We're going to mess up. But in that, we can, uh, we can restore the relationship that we have with ourselves. Amazing. Because if you can restore those two aspects, then you're going to find that instead of judging people, you're going to be able to love them because these two aspects are, are, are in alignment. Currently, they're separate. And just like us and spirit, we want to align. We don't want to continue to separate. There's like our entire lives. We've been told to separate things into two sides, right and wrong. And the thing is, is that's punitive. And, you know, like, like when I talked to to Tio, if you listen to that episode, like he talks about working in the prison, he found somebody, he murdered a woman and he and the mother of that woman ended up embracing and talk to each other and are regular like communicators now because they restore what was wrong. And when asked if he would like to get out of prison, he said, no, mm. I'm here to do my time. Wow. Because it's different, right? Like, like I'm getting emotional. Like there's like this, there's, there's a punitive aspect to like our living our lives, cool. but there. If we want to be ourselves, we cannot judge ourselves from that place. We have to accept where we're at and restore what we can. I love that. And so like, like, like if you're out there judging yourself, trying to figure out what's right and wrong and all that, like that's immediately like, like as soon as you go, wait, I just don't want that. I'm not trying to defend it. I'm not trying to defend my judgment. I'm not trying to defend if. If you have to come up with a reason why drinking is right, then maybe you should stop. But you can't do that if you're in a punitive space. Because if I judge your drinking, that means all the drinking I did in the past was wrong and I'm going to be punished for it. Mm. And that's where people often get to. They get to a place in their minds where it's so punitive that they continue. They stay out in the street longer than they need to because they're trying to continue making the mistake that they fucking like that they made because there is no restorative. And if most of the justice that we see on the news and our neighborhoods is punitive, then the justice we believe in our minds is punitive, which is why I'm all for restorative justice. Yes. Okay. We need punitive, like criminal justice. Sure. But we got that. We've had that forever. Correct. What we need is restorative justice because we need to restore ourselves. We need to restore our neighborhoods. We need to restore our community. Correct. We need to restore our country for Christ's sake. That's right. That's right. And I think, and that's a, the most beautiful, eloquent way I could relate that to relapse. When I try to talk to someone who relapsed, I I explain to them if you're not. This is the most gentle time. And you're you're going to have to be the most gentle on yourself in this moment to reduce that amount of shame because you're going to have the shame. But that shame and stuff is what keeps someone binging for another year or two opposed to getting right back on the wagon. And what I really specifically try to teach on the podcast and with anyone that goes through it, I'm like, look, my job is to explain to you that this is part of the recovery. It's not an excuse to relapse. You know, I'm not playing where it's like if you slip. It's part of recovery, so I'm going to slip because it's part of the process. That's not what we're saying. We're saying is you have to look at it for what it is, kind of like not beat yourself up to the point to where it's detrimental to 
the recovery and get back on track. And I think that's punitive versus restorative. And it's the and I think that's so beautiful. And now I have a, a better way of explaining it because I was developing this in my mind as I talked to people because that was my problem. I had the best intentions, but I was human. I made mistakes. I relapsed. But I felt so crap. I mean, I felt so crappy and how everyone else made me feel. I just didn't have the skills to say, "Okay, well, I had a bad night. Let me try to get back on track. I just let it implode and implode. And next thing you know, two years later, I'm super rock bottom, walking on the street, losing a house and everything. A lot of that could have been fixed if I was a more restorative, loving understanding to why I did it and with myself. So thank you for that. I mean, I love that because that's how we save lives. Right. I always talk about between rock bottoms is where we lose millions of people. All right. Everyone try to say you have to hit this inevitable rock bottom and that's punitive. Because it's like you got to keep suffering until you can no longer suffer anymore and hopefully have the spiritual transcendence to bring you back to recovery. I'm like, yeah, but we millions of people die on that process. Let's try to get them back on the wagon as soon as possible. So, you know, some of these people don't even have addiction problems. Some of these problems, like like, don't even have what we consider traditional, like DSM five addiction problems. Right. The the diagnostic manual, mental health disorders or whatever. Right. Like like like. Like I was talking to that Dr. Anna Lamke today and, yeah. and, and I, and I told her, I was like, look, if we're waiting for the DSM five to tell us what an addiction is, then we're just behind the curve. Correct. Correct. And we want to be ahead of the curve. We want we to be, want ahead, to be of ahead of the curve. And they're, they're looking to us to, 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 to really define it. They're looking through case studies and patients and they right. just, the, you know, um, but I love the DSM five. That's a diagnostical statistical manual. Without that, that's that's where that's how they measure all the mental health disorders and everything and categorize it. Um, Martin, I mean, this is an episode that was long time coming. We really needed this. I feel like this puts a really good cap. 2020 has been a tough year. Um, you gave you gave us a lot of tools and insights. I think people's going to unpack this episode for years to come. So thank you so much. Um, no. Can you just let the audience know where to find you and how they can get in touch with you? Yeah. Uh, Martinjohn.com is the easiest place. M-A-R-T-I-N-J-O-N. Um, that's the easiest way to get in touch with me. Martin John on Facebook, on Twitter, on, uh, Martin John, that's my shit, like M-A-R-T-I-N-J-O-N. Um, and I, you know, even Martin John at martinjohn.com is my email and yeah, hit me up. I'm, uh, I, I, I regularly release the, uh, recover yourself podcast which is on 10 to 12 different outlets most of the outlets that you listen to podcasts probably there just give it a search recover yourself um i do workshops for people in for counselors and clinicians to earn continuing education units in illinois and indiana i'm spreading that to other states these are digital those workshops are are awesome so uh even if you are not professional uh this is this is huge work and great work around recovering yourself there's a there's a great exercise in it it's a three-hour workshop talks about the brain talks about how we can do that work that i walked us through when we did the then we did the office scenario correct 
Ladies and gentlemen, you heard it from the man himself, the myth and the legend, Martin John Garcia. Martin, thank you so much. You know, I love you, brother. I'm glad we're on this journey together. One thing I can say about my recovery, it brought me to you and we're all on the same, you know, we're getting there together. Um, you're listening to the Sober's Dope podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I love you all. Go in peace and I'll catch you guys on the other side.